Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man who gets by just knowing that there's booze in the blender. He is the captain. If you're drunk enough, I'll pay you 10 bucks to put your hand in there. Ooh! Ha! It's good to be seen. It's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. This week, we are very proud to be featuring DDH Noise Pollution by Southern Grist Brewing. Garage grade sound, the trumpets, five out of five bottle caps. This previously draft only double IPA has been brought back, but with some slight changes. First, a double dose of dry hops, and second, it's now in a can, and it's a beautiful pint sized can. And this week's beer is brought to us by our good friends. First up, a big shout out and cheers to my friend Mac down in Nashville. Thank you, Mac, for introducing me to Southern Grist Brewing Company. And a big shout out to Amanda in Anderson, Indiana. Next, a double cheers first to Betty from Kentucky and second to True Crime Sweden. And a big we like your jib to Chelsea in Lanesville, Indiana. Here's a cheers to Roman who rocks TCG in his tractor while out in the fields in Pendleton, Oregon. And last but not least, we have Red and Joe in Iowa. Everyone we just mentioned went to truecrimegarage.com and helped us out with this week's beer fund. And for that, we thank you. Yeah, big cheers, mates. And make sure you rate us. Make sure you subscribe. Give us a good five-star rating. And that is enough of the business. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime.
Pick a country, and you likely can find a citizen who is killed ritualistically and repeatedly. Consider the phrase, run amok, which derives from a Malay word translated loosely as to attack with homicidal mania, believing that amok was caused by an evil spirit. Indonesian culture tolerated these violent outbursts and dealt with the after-effects with no ill will toward the assailant. The underlining premise, the capacity to kill indiscriminately dwells in all of us. Most people just suppress the urge or avoid the spirit. Still, the serial killer occupies a singular role in the cast of Americana, here he, and the vast majority have been male, has been hyperbolized and fetishized and even romanticized. Serial killers are responsible for only a small fraction of the murders committed in the U.S., but they are some of the most notorious figures in our history and culture. Says Sarah Weinman, who runs the newsletter The Crime Lady, Serial killing is twisted fantasy that has roots in the wide-open American landscape, where it is all too easy to hunt and kill without detection and with impunity. It was in the 1970s that agents Robert Ressler and John Douglas of the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit coined and defined the term serial killer, distinguishing one from a mass murderer who may kill many at once, or a spree killer who lacks a so-called cooling-off period between murders. Indeed, the 70s marked the crimson-stained height of serial killing in the U.S. In that era, there were a number of factors working in the assailant's favor, from lax gun laws to the popularity of psychedelic drugs to the sprawling interstate highway system and cheap gas. And from the dearth of surveillance technology to the spotty coordination among police precincts, it may never have been easier to avoid getting caught. Taken from John Wertheim's SI.com, long-form article titled The I-5 Killer, this is True Crime Garage. We start off on the evening of December 9th, 1980, in Vancouver, Washington. A 20-year-old female attendant is working the second shift at a gas station, when seemingly out of nowhere, a man suddenly appears. He was tall with dark hair, and on his face he had what was very obviously a fake beard. Before the attendant knew it, the man was standing right in front of her, and he had a gun. The man told her to open up the register and give him the money. She did as he requested. He then told her to turn around and just like that, he was gone. The robbery was reported and the attendant provided police with the description of a young, dark-haired man 
who was tall and had an athletic body type. And it was with this very quick but very terrifying event that a series of robberies and holdups started. Just days later, an ice cream parlor was hit. The next day, a drive-in restaurant. The robberies occurred in both Washington and Oregon. But then on December 21st, a different type of report came in. 200 miles away from the holdup at the drive-in restaurant in Seattle, Washington, a woman working at Church's Fried Chicken reported that before 9 p.m., she was in the women's restroom, washing her hands and face, when a man walked in. He said, excuse me, but he did not leave. Instead, he locked the door behind him. He put the gun to her head and said, do what I say and you won't get hurt. He then forced her to perform a sex act, and immediately after the assault, he left, but not before telling her to count to 100 before she dared to exit the restroom. She obeyed, and then out of fear, she stayed in the restroom, screaming for help. A co-worker called police. The victim gave a description of her attacker, a tall man with dark hair and a small silver gun. Who was the man with the silver gun who seemed to appear out of nowhere? Well, Mr. Fake Weird Beard, was, was he wearing a beard during this attack? So we have a several robberies that take place and we have at least one sexual assault but in these cases most of these cases he is wearing what is a fake beard and it's not even like a good fake beard because the witnesses are able to tell law enforcement is there a such thing as a good fake beard? <laughs> i don't i don't think there is but if there is i've never seen one i know in one of the attacks that the the beard was like hanging off his face it wasn't really even attached to his face very well mm -hmm. the other key thing about these robberies is the witnesses will always tell law enforcement that the weird thing of the man seeming to just appear out of nowhere and these are all storefronts and gas stations and drive-up restaurants. So what they mean by him appearing out of nowhere, it's not like they saw him get out of a car and walk into the establishment and then hold up the place. They said that they would turn around or look up from whatever they were doing, and he was standing right in front of them. By January of 1981, law enforcement had dubbed the robber the I-5 Bandit, this given his apparent preference for committing crimes along the Interstate 5 corridor. On January 8th, he held up the same Vancouver gas station he had robbed in December. Three days later, on January 11th, he robbed a market in Eugene. The next day, on the 12th, he shot and wounded a female grocery clerk at a store in Sutherland, Oregon. In some of these robberies, the man had a Band-Aid or a piece of tape across the bridge of his nose. When he shot and robbed the grocery clerk in Oregon, he had two Band-Aids across the bridge of his nose. The woman survived, and the man made off with over $300 in cash. The bullet went into the woman's shoulder and out through her back. Police recovered the bullet. It was now evidence. And a possible witness reported seeing a VW bug parked just outside of the grocery store around the time of the attack. Yeah, and we all know that's not good. This leads us to Salem, Oregon, January 18th, 1981, just before 10 p.m. An emergency call comes in. The caller is a woman, and she is asking for help. 
She tells the operator that we have been shot. A trace is put on the call, and the call is coming from the Trans-American Title Building. Squad cars and an ambulance are sent racing toward the building. The operator asks the woman for her name. The caller is having trouble speaking. Her voice is faint, and her breathing is weak. Fighting through the pain, the caller says her name is Beth Wilmot, and that they need to hurry because we have been shot in the head. And Beth is pretty sure her best friend, Sherry Hall, is already dead. The operator asks who shot you. Beth says it was a man, but she did not know him. Beth and Sherry were at the Trans-American building cleaning the office when a man walked in. She said the man was above average height with dark hair and a Band-Aid on his nose. The man was wearing a coat and jeans, and he was in his mid to late 20s. Beth said again and again that her friend Sherry is dying. Beth was afraid that the man was going to return. Now, a police officer arrived at the scene. He arrives there first, and he's alone. The emergency caller did not know if the shooter was still in the building. The officer, knowing the general layout of the building, he knew if he entered, he would become the perfect target should the shooter remain inside. But by the description of the attack and the injuries he heard on his police radio, he also knew if he didn't go in, the two women inside would surely die. So with a gun drawn, the officer kicked open the door and entered. The operator stayed on the line until the ambulance arrived. The shooter, thankfully, had left. Beth somehow survived this attack. Sherry did not. Despite her being shot in the head twice, luckily neither bullet penetrated Beth's skull. And she lived and she remembered a lot about the attack and about the attacker. In horrific detail, she was later able to describe both two detectives. The two women, Beth and Sherry, were best friends, and they operated an evening and weekend cleaning business. That Sunday night, they were cleaning the Trans-American building. They were almost done and getting ready to leave and go home for the night. Sherry unlocked the front door, went out to the parking lot, started up her red Bronco. She left it running and went back into the building just to finish up a few things. Just then, a man with a silver gun and a Band-Aid on his nose entered the building. He ordered the women to a room in the back. Once there, he threatens them. He makes them take off all of their clothes. He sexually assaulted both of the women. When he was done, he told both of them to lay face down on the floor next to each other. Then, standing over top of them, he shot Sherry in the head. Then he shot Beth in the head. Then Sherry again. Then Beth again. And then Sherry. Then he left. Well, and Beth, after being shot the first time, she kind of plays dead, which is possibly what saved her life. Yeah, Beth went on to say that she knew the man would just keep shooting them if they moved. So after that first shot, she made herself lie completely still and silent. But we do know he shot her again anyway. This probably just to make sure that she was dead. And Beth said that she was lucky because the man shot Sherry three times and she was only shot twice. Police were able to retrieve some evidence from the crime scene. But we have to keep in mind how difficult of a situation this would be to collect evidence. One, we have a guy that it seems like 
neither of the victim even knew. So what was he doing there in the first place? But then on top of that, we have first responders who their main objective, their first goal arriving on the scene is to preserve life, is to save the lives of these victims. Right. And when they arrived on the scene, both of these women, they were alive, but they're both clinging, clinging to life. They're very close to death. And so we have a situation of the police. They have to go in to save lives. They have first responders. We have, we have uh, medical technicians there. Everybody is working and really they're trampling and, and contaminating the scene. Plus we have the added factor of this is taking place in a building and the police have to go in there and clear the building to make sure that the shooter is not still in this building. Luckily, they are able to retrieve some evidence from this crime scene and they might've got lucky here because this is some pretty decent evidence. So first they find a single hair, which after some testing and comparing it to first responders, they believed, and the victims, they believed this hair to be from the suspect. They also were able to retrieve the suspect's blood type. Was it a real hair or was it a fake hair? This was a real hair, my friend. And they retrieved the suspect's blood type, which they later determined to be B negative. This is also a good thing for them because it eliminates quite a good deal of the male population. They also had a living witness. And most importantly, they found a bullet. Now, obviously, we know there were five shots, so there was more than one bullet, but right. one bullet was in great condition. This was a thirty-two caliber, and because of its condition, they were able to narrow it down to just a few different guns, meaning they had a very good idea of what kind of gun fired this bullet. Right. Are they making the connection that this is their I-5 bandit yet? They have not. But then we have this situation that is just 16 days later, and it's about 380 miles away and right off I-5, just north of Redding, California. There was another attack, and this time it ended in a double homicide. Just before 9 p.m. on February 3rd, 1981, a young woman came home, and the house looked empty. She called out as she walked the house but no one answered. When she reached the upstairs, she came into a bedroom and discovered the lifeless bodies of Donna Eckerd and Janelle Jarvis. Each had been shot several times in the head. One of the women was bound at the wrist and ankles, and her mouth and nose were covered with surgical tape. Detectives quickly deduced that both were alive and well just less than three hours earlier, this because of a phone call that took place with Donna. Yeah, because the person that was on that phone call is also the person that found the bodies. Yeah, Donna told the caller that she and Janelle were going to go down to Jake's Market to pick up some, some items for breakfast the next day. Now, inside of one of the women's pants pocket, detectives found a handwritten check made out to Jake's Market. Interviews conducted at Jake's Market determined that the two never made it to Jake's. Someone had intercepted them. Right. Law enforcement also determined that the victim had only been dead maybe an hour before they were discovered. They were both killed with a 32 caliber gun. Now, back in Salem, we have Beth Wilmot. 
the one who almost died, was shot in the head twice. She is recovering from her two gunshot wounds to the head. And to everyone's surprise, she is healing much faster than anticipated. She's able to give detectives a description of the man that killed her friend and that tried unsuccessfully to kill her. Now, with some good old-fashioned detective work, the Salem police were now working under the theory and suspicion that the killer was not a local. This leads them to sending out a teletype to police offices in other jurisdictions and other states. Now, they are asking if any community had experienced a similar homicide. Immediately, they got a response from the Redding, California area. After comparing notes, they firmly believed that the two cases were linked. They were, in fact, the same type of crimes, same caliber gun, and both right along the I-5 corridor. Then, Salem released the following description to other jurisdictions and to other states. Salem police were looking for a male white, 25 to 28 years old, 5 foot 11 to 6 foot 1 inches tall, medium build, described as good build, with dark hair, possibly curly collar length, and dark eyes, pale or light complexion, described as being good-looking, and has sad eyes, with more white showing below the iris. The suspect wears a black or orange knit cap, a green hooded coat, brown cord or sheepskin-lined jacket, green windbreaker. The coat's always buttoned. Blue jeans and all incidences. White tennis shoes with red stripe. Blue driving type gloves with open back. They go on to describe the gun that is believed to have been used in these crimes. A possible H&R, brake top six shot revolver. Vehicle. A 66 or later light colored VW bug, possibly modified in some manner. Now keep in mind regarding this vehicle, that's more of a suspicion rather than they're saying that we've seen this in all of these incidences. Right. And because we have multiple attacks and robberies and such that have taken place, we have a different description of what this suspect could be wearing. After the description goes out, more police agencies contacted Salem. The description matched that of the robberies and holdups that we previously discussed and in the following. February 3rd in Reading, a female store clerk was kidnapped, raped, and a holdup. An identical crime was reported in Wairika on February 4th, with the same man robbing an Ashland, Oregon motel that same night. Five days later in Corvallis, a man matching the description held up a fabric store, molesting the clerk and a customer before he left. On February 12th, there were robberies committed in Vancouver, Olympia, and Bellevue, Washington. The Olympia and Bellevue incidences included sexual assaults. Some jurisdictions were looking for the I-5 bandit. Some jurisdictions were looking for the I-5 killer. And as police were learning, the two were one and the same. And at this point, did they decide to change his name from the I-5 killer to broken dick nose fake beard? The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. 
Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go, for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch. Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. 
Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need to pack a lunch and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, we're back. Cheers. So now we have police from several jurisdictions that are now in communication with each other. They are sharing the details of the robberies, the assaults, and the murders, and what evidence and witness statements they may have. These are dedicated detectives determined to solving these murders and ending this crime spree. And to ensure that they can track this guy down, they want to know everything about him. So they start to put together a psychological profile and list out what is known about the offender's modus operandi. Here is what they come up with. They are looking for a male Caucasian who has a macho image of himself. Recently divorced or separated from a lover. Recently released from penal or mental institution. This man would be described as a nice guy and would not be considered a suspect by a friend or neighbors. The motivation in all of these incidents is primarily sexual. He is a loner. Some things to consider. The offender has not hit Portland or Multnomah County. Does not like location with men present. Has not hit outside of time span. They had narrowed down most of these attacks to taking place in the early evening hours. So when they reference time span, that's what they are stating. This is with the exception of one incident that took place in February in Eugene, Oregon. The offender has only hit one convenience store. Takes Band-Aid off when fleeing. Tape is an unknown brand. Now, this is tape that was used to to bind the victims. 
And also, we have to consider that on some of these attacks, it's not a Band-Aid across the bridge of his nose. It is some type of tape. The individual parks one to four blocks away from the scene, is never seen by the clerk prior to the incident. They go on to say that they suspect that the individual may be hiding glasses marks on nose with the Band-Aid or the tape. They go on to discuss the offender's method of operation, stating that the offender picks a location where young girls are working or likely to work. He prefers to hit in the evening hours between 5.40 p.m. and 11 p.m. Only attacks during slack times of operation. This is when the businesses would not be busy. There wouldn't be a lot of traffic in and out of these businesses. He is armed with a 32 caliber nickel-plated revolver. He ties or tapes victims, has victim disrobe, but he stays dressed. In 13 of these 23 incidences, there were sexual assaults. The older female victims are only fondled. The offender is soft-spoken and not verbally abusive. He takes the victims to the back room. No drug, alcohol, or tobacco odors are detected by victims. He has never seen casing the businesses. He has his own vehicle, parks up to four blocks away, wears Band-Aid on nose, and he has used a wig and or fake beard as a disguise. He also takes the telephone receiver away from the scene. This occurred in almost all of the attacks in which there was somebody shot or some type of sexual assault. This Seemingly so he, they can't call police immediately after he leaves. The hood of his jacket always stays on, and he wears gloves, but may take them off to fondle the victims. He has victims count to 100 as he is leaving the scene. Well, the first question for me becomes the true motive, you know, because they're not convinced that all these, what, there's 23 uh, attacks and robberies. 13 of them sexual. It seems like to me that there's a double motive and it's not just sexual. It's that this guy needs money. Yeah, I agree with that. He needs money, but also the, uh, he also needs this, this sexual satisfaction. Yeah. Because that's if, if the, the primary motive is simply money, he's putting himself at a much greater risk to assault these women. Agreed. But and, it's, but in every, scenario there is money taken correct um i don't think that there was in the first sexual assault that we okay. described where he walked into the restroom where the woman was already in there but it's like escalating right like it, it seems like there was a couple robberies and then once he figured it's almost like this guy figured out i can control this situation enough that not only do i get money but now i can then the motive then becomes sexual I actually think what what's going on here is kind of a, a, a two-pronged motive. One, I think you're absolutely right. This guy needs the money. But I think money is mainly secondary to his motivation for these crimes. I think sexual is the, the primary motivating factor here. I think that in situations where we have a robbery that occurs and there is not a sexual assault, I think there's something else going on there. One, it could be practice 
to see how much he believes he can control a situation right. and to also just kind of see what's going to go down and then later determine, okay, I, it's safe for me to be here for a longer period of time. I'm more comfortable controlling these victims and more comfortable controlling the scene of the robbery. And so I think that the primary motivating factor here is the sexual aspect. But I also think that in some of these situations, he could either get spooked and just want to get the money and get out of there. Yeah. Or he sees a situation where he thinks they might fight back or he might not be able to control the situation. What I'm getting at is there's some variable there that comes into play in the situations where sexual assault does not occur that we probably will never understand. Well, he also might be looking for a, a certain type. Correct. Because he's just going into these random places almost. Well, and that's what I think that the police are trying to point out here where they say his motivation, you know, one of his methods of operation is he picks locations where young women are working or likely to work. Right. Okay. And, and then when he's fondling older women, he's just fondling them. Mm -hmm. So, so it does appear he has some type of right victimology, some type that he may be looking for in these sexual assaults. The interesting thing here though, too, is like you pointed out in this situation, they're never going to be 100% certain that all 23 of these incidences are in fact connected and committed by the same offender. Mm -hmm. So what they do is when they're pulling together their, their information that they know, things that they know occurred during the, the committing of these crimes and things that the offender said and did his actions they're comparing notes and these, these lists that they're providing us now, mind you, this is not something that they wanted to send out there, but they're not so much putting it forward to the public. They're just sharing it with other jurisdictions and other States. Mm -hmm. This is a time when jurisdictions didn't always work together very well or cooperate together. And I'm sure well, and the on technology wasn't there as well. And I'm sure on some level it took some convincing from one police department to another to point out that we may be dealing with the same guy and we all need this to stop because not only is this guy hitting all these places and he's, this is a rapid fire attack here. We're talking about 23 incidences in, in a short period of time. Well, they mentioned somebody that might've just got out of a relationship that just got maybe divorced. Yeah, and or recently released from a, a penitentiary or a mental institution. Yeah, which would then go with the whole no job thing. I'd also put on that description possibly a guy that recently just lost a, a, a job or job opportunity because, again, that money, it's, it's always there. The mm. sexual assaults are not always there, but mm. it's almost in every case... There is some money uh, being taken. Now, 300 bucks is not, and I think one of the cases it was 300 bucks, not a huge amount of money. But I wonder if that's because this guy knows, I'm just going to keep doing this again. So what does it matter if I, just only, if I only get 300? He's not doing anything that is setting himself up for a big takeover. Well, and obviously we didn't go through all 23 of those, those situations because it's just too much to list out and just too much to go through. But on some occasions he's hitting more than one place where 
where there's a, a robbery and or sexual assault, he's hitting more than one place in the same day. Right. So like you said, he's, he's going, he knows he's going to rob again. He knows that regardless if it's $10 or a hundred dollars in the till, they are, there will be another robbery soon. Well, right. And I like the fact that they say, look, he only hit one convenience store. And so there was something about that convenience store, whether it was too difficult to take over, maybe it was too difficult to control, uh, is the more customers, the possibility of more customers than he can control the situation? Or is it just simply, ah, there was, there was not enough money there. Um, is that one of the reasons why he only hit one convenience store? Well, we should also keep in mind back. We're not talking about something that took place five or 10 years ago. These crimes that we've described so far here are 1980, 1981. So back then we have an average salary in the United States of like 13 to $14,000. So right. 300 bucks is, is a good hit for him. We're, we're talking about, this is a guy that is probably pulling down enough, be it whether there's a little bit of money or something more substantial like $300, that he might be able to survive off of just these hits, just off of these robberies. So where you say that somebody, we should also so factor in and consider somebody who recently lost a job, I think you're spot on there because yeah, what they're pointing out with, what the, yeah, what they're pointing out here is Recently divorced or separated from a girlfriend or lover. You're adding in loss of job or loss of opportunity. That's fantastic because they want to know something triggered this. Yeah. We we have a, the similar description in all of these incidences. So something triggered this. And once that, that trigger was set, this guy hit the ground running and he committed a lot of crimes and at a fast pace. So they want to know what what was preventing him from doing this in the first place. Maybe he was married and didn't need to, didn't need the money. Yeah, it's weird though too because he's um described as attractive. So you would think if the, again, I lean to that idea where they where they're saying, "Oh, well possibly he was in a relationship or married." some kind of sexual needs were being met. And for some reason now, here's this attractive man. He's newly single. And instead of going and trying to uh, meet another mate, this is how he uh, is going about his life now. Yeah. And some of our listeners do not like when they hear the description that's put forward by law enforcement, that the offender is described as good looking. And I get that. But this is a quick reminder that monsters don't always look like monsters. Right. And we have this situation here where in some of these incidences, you know, they're asking questions to these victims saying, be it for a robbery or sexual assault or what have you. They're asking them very simple things to try to lead them to who the offender is. You know, what did anything seem off? Was there anything weird going on or did you notice thing, anything out of the ordinary before the attack occurred? Well, no, I didn't notice anything. Nothing seemed off that day. So that's where they're going. They're saying, well, it doesn't appear that he is casing the business, that he's watching the business and then hitting. Right. That'd take too much time. There seems to be a frequency here. And then the, the 
the added factor of they say, well, he's parking his vehicle one to four blocks away and fleeing the scene. That's They can simply come up with that by going, okay, after the attack, did you hear or see a vehicle leave the property, leave right. the premise? No, did not, and none of them. So they know that this guy is fleeing on foot. Furthermore, when it comes to the good-looking thing, I, I know of one of these incidences where when the victim was asked, is there anything, was there anything weird or out of the ordinary before the attack? She said that the, the strangest thing occurred before the attack is that a this this dirty looking younger guy came in and she said the man had a threatening appearance. And the guy said to her something to the effect of, you know, this would be an incredibly easy place to rob. Mm-hmm. And this put her on edge. Well, this this threatening looking individual, according to her statement, made a made a small purchase and then left. And she said the oddest thing about this whole hold up to her was that shortly after this weird looking dude left, mm-hmm. this this good looking tall man, clean cut comes in and I my guard was down because of his appearance and then he's the one that robs me. So right. that's where we have that statement of of possibly good looking. Right. Have we have we had any other statements like that before? That that they saw a dirty guy. I, I I'm only throwing that out there no, because that, we have a guy that's wearing, possibly wearing wigs and wearing, uh, fake beard, and then with the whole tape on the nose, it, it's really like he's trying to do uh, the the tape on the nose thing is weird or the band aid on the nose because to me one it's like uh, a broken nose mm-hmm. or possibly you know to open up the nose a little bit. And I would only say that because possibly he's parking, you know, very far away. Some people, you know, I'm just throwing out straws there. You know, is, is he wearing this because he's sprinting to and from the places? Um, but we have these disguises. Is this guy put in on a disguise and going in there and, and casing the joint? They say he's not casing the joint, but what if he's casing the joint as, as an, another character? Well, I have to believe that they were just wrong about that in some form because you don't get lucky 23 times. You don't go into a business 23 times and commit some kind of crime and then get away scot-free. Right. That's just playing the numbers game there. It doesn't add up. So I have to believe that in some way. Yeah, but there's a lot that you can learn from parking two blocks away from a place. And then approaching it. You know what I mean? There's so I, I think their statement is almost um bogus by default. Well, I don't think he was sitting there for hours or on multiple days watching Agreed. these yeah. businesses. What we see is somebody who is offending in multiple jurisdictions, and we're talking a lot of these are hundreds of miles away from each other, but they're all off of this I five interstate. So I think this is somebody with a good knowledge of that interstate and the businesses along the way. I think this is somebody that probably travels the I five a good deal. And in his travels, maybe he's, he's learning, he's doing a bit of Intel along the way and he can make, he can make a side note and say, 
that gas station that I stopped at tonight that I got gas from, I didn't stop there to case the joint. I stopped there because my tank was low and I needed gas. Right. Oh, it was 8.30 p.m. There was a young woman working alone in the gas station. It's Thursday and there was no other customers here. And you could just make a quick mental note of that and say, you know what? If I'm back in Eugene, Oregon on this date, you know, on, on, the, on this day next week at 8 p.m., this might be a spot to hit. And then with the disguise stuff, I love the the suspicion or the, the question of could the tape or Band-Aid be used for hiding glasses marks on the nose? You know, that this would be somebody that in his everyday life, he wears glasses. Mm-hmm. But that could be an identifier. So when committing these crimes, he is not wearing these glasses. And to cover that up, he's put this Band-Aid or tape across the bridge of his nose. And I think that's an easy conclusion to come up with. I, th- I think it's creative, but where you make that leap is you know that he's used fake, uh, fake beard in, in more than one occasion. So he is making some attempt at disguising himself. Right. And he may have taken it a step further and come up with this idea to use the Band-Aid or the tape across the bridge of his nose. Well, and even with the, the fake beard or, or the tape or the Band-Aid, like it, it causes a distraction from natural features. So, yeah. I mean, even if it's not really so much to cover up, you know, a broken nose or, or the glasses marks on the, on the bridge of the nose, it's almost, it just creates a distraction in general. And then I thought about the frequency of how much this is happening. Like you said, there could be um, a robbery one day and then, and later that day, uh, sexual assault. And so to me, that leans towards possible like alcoholism or some addiction, but, but they're not smelling any alcohol and there's no, like, it seems like this guy is coming in and they're going, he was, uh, not suspicious. So there's almost no signs of drug activity. Well, and I think you're right there. This to me would point to a very organized offender. We have somebody that is has determined that it's best for him to park not near the business and to enter and leave on foot. He is arriving and he's attempting to disguise himself. He's wearing gloves in all of these incidences, so he's not leaving fingerprints behind. He's also very organized in the way that he controls the situation and really follows almost the same script each time. You know, taking the the victim to the back room where they're concealed. And so I think we are dealing with somebody that might not be incredibly intelligent, but he's at least good at doing this thing. And he is organized in the sense that that's why I go, you know, to back up what the victims were saying, no drug, alcohol, or tobacco odors. He doesn't, he does not appear to be out of control in any of these situations. He doesn't appear to be out of his mind or drunk or anything like that. He's not making a lot of mistakes. Well, they also point out that he doesn't hit, he didn't hit a couple areas. Uh, like all of his attacks were outside those areas. And so that makes you wonder, do they believe that he's from that area that he's not attacking at because he's would be more likely to be known in those areas. Yeah, that was Portland and or 
uh, Multnomah County, as well as he only hit uh, Eugene, Oregon seems to be a place that he has hit, but only once maybe during all of this. So you're right. When we have all of these attacks, now he does have hundreds of miles to choose from for these attacks. Right, right. But for whatever reason, he seems to be staying out of those areas. But while we were saying that they're, they can never be 100% convinced that all of these incidences are, in fact, all linked to one another, the very interesting thing here is when they're comparing notes, they're seeing the same stuff in, in these all 23 of these things. We, we got the offender's actions the way that he speaks to the victims. We also have a very similar description in all of these incidences, as well as the same description of the weapon used during which. So it's good that they're sharing information. It's bad that they now know that they're dealing with a guy that is roaming basically the the countryside and roaming the the West Coast up and down the I-5, and he doesn't seem to be stopping or even slowing down when committing these crimes on February 15th. Now keep in mind, captain, this is just three days after multiple attacks took place on the 12th, 18 year old Julianne writes, she is at a party. She is leaving that party. This is around 2 AM. She tells all of her friends that she is heading home. Julianne writes lives with her mother at Southwest Cherry Hill drive This is in Beaverton, Oregon. Mm -hmm. Now, her mother is out of town that night, and when her mother returns the next day, she finds the body of Julie Wrights, finding her lying nude on the stairs, her hair bloodstained. She had been shot point blank in the head. Yeah. The time of death was later determined to be between 3 and 4 a.m. Police recovered a thirty-eight caliber bullet from the victim. There was an eyewitness statement that said that the only thing that he noticed out of the ordinary was that he had seen a VW bug driving up and down Julie's street that night. Police went on to interview about 150 people who were closest to Julie, who were in her social circles. They believed that none of the people they interviewed made for a good suspect. Now, This case is not connected to the I-5 killer for one simple fact. The police were working under the suspicion that Julie knew her killer. They based this off of what they found at the crime scene. Mm. Julie writes had shared a glass of wine with her attacker. And she had also was in the process of preparing coffee for two. Okay. And somewhere in this process, she is gunned down by her assailant. So what we have here is you come up with, well, why did they come up with this? Well, this is easy to put together. They know that Julie lives with her mother. When's the last time you saw Julie? What time were you last at your home? Oh, I, Julie was already gone for the day. I left. When I returned, I find my daughter dead. We know that Julie came home that night. And then they find wine glasses and somebody, you know, evidence to suggest that somebody was in the process of making or serving coffee. So we're under the assumption that Julie knew the killer well enough to 
let the individual into the home and spend some time talking with him. But we have a sexual assault and we have shots to the head. Mm-hmm. So this is why they are very interested in interviewing all the people that are closest to her. These are your obvious, this is your obvious go-to. They believe that out of those 150 people, approximate 150 people, that none of the people that they interviewed made for a good suspect. This points them to a different thought, that their suspect is known to the victim, Julie writes, but would be on the fringes of her life and social circles. Yeah. They're going to have to go back and re-interview all of these people or a good majority of them. This is because now they're not looking at any of those individuals as actual suspects. They are wanting to get more information from them on who are the people that, that kind of knew Julie. Is there anyone that stands out? Is there a guy that she might've known? They come up with two or three different people out of this group of 150 that mention a name of an individual that Julie had some type of a relationship with. It seems like they, they worked together at one point. This man took her on a date, maybe two, but Julie didn't really want a relationship with this individual. The name that's presented to them is Randall Woodfield. He is somebody that worked at the faucet with Julie Wright's. This was a bar, and I believe that Woodfield was a bouncer or possibly a bartender. He, he worked from time to time as a bouncer and or bartender at some of these different bars. This faucet bar is located in Portland, so not terribly far away. Apparently, he didn't last very long working at this bar because, yeah, he must have been a bouncer because it says in my notes here that he was let go because he didn't, didn't seem comfortable removing people from the bar. Mm -hmm. So they want to track down this Randy Woodfield and give him a a strong looking at give him the business. Well, the, the other added factor here too, is one of the, one of the individuals that supply police with his name says, you know, what do you know about this guy? Well, I know that he, he did some time or got in trouble for some robberies years ago. Okay, so now we have a guy that actually fits what they're looking for, that's on the fringes of her life and social circles. And then on top of that, it's a guy with a record. Right, but riddle me this. Is he wearing a fake beard? (laughs) Uh, Well, police do, once they have his name, they want to go talk to him Mm. because it's very simple. This is our next guy in line here. This is somebody that is pointed out to us by two or three of the people that knew Julianne Wrights. So let's go talk to him because he could either be a suspect or if he has an alibi that is good, then we can clear him and move on with our investigation. So they have to travel out to Eugene, Oregon, and they meet with Randy Woodfield. He answers the door when they knock and they're talking to him. And early on in their conversation, they say, hey, we, do you know somebody named Julianne Wrights? And he says, no, I can't place the name. I don't know anybody by that name. To which police follow up with the question of, well, would you mind coming to our police department and discussing some things with us there? Right. Because this is what's going to set off some alarm bells for the investigators. 
We have a guy that wants to lie about knowing Julianne Wrights, who was found murdered. Yet we have at least two or three people that say not only did they know each other, but there was some type of involvement. Which which is interesting because this happens a lot in cases. It's it's when the pe- when the person lies about knowing the victim, the red flags go up. Mm-hmm. But me and you were we're so we're good with faces, bad with names. And so it's like I could totally see you being interviewed by the police and then and them asking you, Do you know so and so? And you going, well, I don't think so <laughs> you know. Um I get that, but one one of the witnesses are saying that they went on a date together. The other is saying that Randy was pursuing aggressively pursuing a relationship with Julianne Wrights. So it wasn't even, it wasn't just, it's not, they worked together. It's not that, yeah, it's not that they just happened to cross paths and work together for a brief time period together. And on top of that, when he worked at the faucet was less than half a year, less than six months before they're questioning him about Julianne Wrights. Right. But again, it's not a, it's not a good deal of time. And it's also others perception that they, were at least friends or went on a date together. Right, right. I would say the the friends are being pursued by this guy. That's definitely more of a reason why he would know her than that they worked at a a, a bar together, which ton of you know, there's a ton of turnover at bars too. So Well and think about this from Randy's perspective, because he doesn't know everything that the investigators that are talking to him, he does not know what they know. Right. And he is Technically, when he's asked that question, he's in a no-win situation. This is a lose-lose, baby, because if he says, yes, I do know her, well, they've already stated that they are looking for somebody that knew her as a very good suspect. But when he says, no, I did not know her, this makes it a double whammy because now they want to know why, one, we're looking for somebody that knows her, but why does this man want to lie and say that he does not know her? Thank you so much for joining us back in the garage. So much more to get to next episode. Won't you please join us? Yeah, we'll be back for part two tomorrow. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't litter. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.